Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear. And I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to the Parenting for Liberation podcast. I am your host, Trina Green-Brown. Each episode, I'm joined by other Black parents, and we discuss our journeys to push past our fears to raise our beautiful Black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. Hey y'all, this is Trina. This podcast episode comes as we close out Women's History Month and we are in conversation with author Anna Malika Tubbs, who is the author of Three Mothers, which celebrates Black motherhood by telling the story of three mothers who raised and shaped America's most pivotal heroes, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. So today we say their names we say Alberta King, Louise Little, and Burtis Baldwin, and we continue to honor and celebrate Black womanhood and Black motherhood. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Anna Malika Tubbs, and gosh, I don't even know what to say about myself. I wrote the book, (laughs) The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. Um, I am a mother of a son, Michael Malachi, who is 17 months old today, and I have another on the way in August. So um, I'm very excited about that. And it's been a lot of fun to be on this virtual book tour while pregnant. <laughs> I've had a couple mornings where, you know, I wake up, throw up and then do my call. So as we know, mothers just push through it all and um, really just a testament to what we're doing in this world to make change, not only for ourselves, but for those who we love. And um, I'm excited to be in this conversation with you all and to talk about three women who did that in so many ways, who were change makers long before um, they brought their children into the world, they were giving life through their art, through their activism, through their passions, through their creativity. And um, they're just incredible. So for those who have read the book, we'll dive more deeply into it. And those who haven't, hopefully you'll be excited um, to pick up a copy soon. And in terms of my motivations for writing it, um, and you might hear my son in the background, he's his dad upstairs. So that's a part of the event. <laughs> Um, (laughs) in terms of my motivations I it's part of my PhD research so they're similar in terms of I base the work on these three incredible women um, but different in their approach so the book is much more emotion-based narrative based and the dissertation honors a lot of this theory that black women have produced in terms of mothering mother work revolutionary mothering Um, birthing justice, et cetera. So both really cool documents, I'd say, but very different from one another. I just knew when I started my PhD, I wanted to address the erasure of Black women's stories. It happens so often. um, That gave me a very wide landscape to choose from. But I was really inspired by Margot Lee Shetterly's Hidden Figures, her book that went on to become this very famous movie. And the way in which she taught us about people we should have already known, um, but also showed us the intentionality behind why they were erased. Uh, You have to ask, why didn't we already know the stories of these women who were essential in the space launch? And 
essential in pushing our country forward towards a national and even international goal. And so I was somebody that was going to join that conversation and say, who else is intentionally being erased? Why is this happening? Who are other hidden figures? And then I thought about roles in our society that are often overlooked, unrecognized, and therefore unprotected, unsupported. And that's when motherhood came to mind for me. I think in so many ways, it is underappreciated, not given the credit that it deserves. The mother work that we perform of nourishing people, this is not only through biological motherhood, but for those who educate these kind of characteristics that are associated with mothering and mother work, like Patricia Hill Collins puts it, are so underappreciated, like I said already, and seen as if they're somehow weak. Um, instead of in the power and in the influence and then the strength that they deserve to be represented. So that's how I came up with, I mean, there's a lot more that went into it, but those were some of the primary factors I was going to talk about erasure, talk about motherhood. And the three of them, I arrived at Alberta King, Burtis Baldwin, and Louise Little, because one, they were all born within six years of each other. And their famous sons were all born within five years of each other. So I could talk about really cool intersections in their stories, but even more so because they were so incredibly different from one another. And I'm all about representing the strength and the diversity of our Black womanhood and how different we all are. And that's how we have gained so much. We have supported each other. We have seen each other. We have celebrated each other. But so many others have tried to reduce us into boxes, into categories, and put our experience into just this one very reductive identity in so many different ways. Um, and so I wanted this book to be the opposite of that and say, this is a celebration of Black womanhood, but also look at us in our complexity, in our wholeness. And that was also really important to me. So I'll leave it there. I'm sure we have a lot more yeah. questions to go. <laughs> got us into it. We are in it already. Even as you started describing that, um, it made me think about this current moment, right? About the roles that are now considered essential workers, right? What are those roles, right? Those are the nurturing roles, the caregiving roles, right? Mm -hmm. Now they, now we realize they're essential. Yeah. Uh, but for so long, those roles have gone ignored, underpaid, under-resourced um, without any uh, supports or infrastructure to really uplift them. So I really appreciate you acknowledging motherhood and mothering work as work, as labor. Yeah. Uh, so that's really important. Um, you know, I just love your book. So let's just get into it. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, I really appreciated the book because in the work that we do at Parenting for Liberation, we really do the work in three buckets. And I feel like your work, your book gets at those three buckets, right? So we talk about the work of the self, like what is the healing or internal work we have to do as parents? Um, and then what is the kind of relationship we want to have with our children? So mm -hmm. in the learning and connecting to our children and also in the third bucket is around community. Like how do we build community? How do we support each other? Yeah. And so like starting with the self, what I really appreciated about your book is that, um, you know, you honor the wholeness of these women, right? You don't start with they had baby X number, you know, like this is the day they gave birth and then their story begins, right? No, you talk about their identity as women, as young girls, right? And so um, 
I really appreciated you beginning with their identities. And that's similar to the work that we do. Like before we can be like the best liberated parents that we can be, like it's also about how do we check with ourselves? How do we connect with ourselves, right? Um, what's the healing work I need? How do I mother my own inner child, right? Uh-huh. Um, that's the work that we're doing here at Parent of Liberation. So I, I'm curious if you can share with folks who might not know a little bit about their identities, um, to share a little bit about them, not as mothers, but as women. And why did you feel compelled to tell that part of their stories in a book called Three Mothers? Yeah. And it was so important to me. And I love that practice that you start with the self because it's crucial for us to understand. Another thing that happens with motherhood society, society-wise is that we really erase the identity of the mother before, even though she is very much carrying that with her and her experience of mothering her children and everything that she does beyond that. And so it's not this like separate person, you know, it's instead this kind of growth. If somebody chooses this part or this choice in their life of who they always were. And of course we're developing and we're changing, but we don't suddenly become erased. We don't go away somewhere. And so it was definitely about honoring who they all were um, again, long before their sons were even a thought in their mind. And so to give it to, you know, each of them, I'll give some teasers. Alberta King was born, and this is a little bit, <laughs> was born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, to two parents who really believed that faith could not be faith without social justice, that if you were going to be a religious leader, that you also had to advocate for the needs of people here on this earth right now. And even if you yourself were able to gain certain privileges, that you use those to advance freedom forward. And so they were the leaders of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And again, still famous to this day, Ebenezer Baptist, they built it to what it is. You know, at the time when they arrived, there were only maybe 14 members and they grew it um, to still, you know, again, what the presence is of it to this day. And they really taught their congregation members that, We advocated for ourselves. They were aware of what was happening in the United States, um, rights that were being not only taken away, but, you know, continuously um, delayed in terms of what we should have gained. And they marched, they led boycotts, they were some of the first members of the NAACP, they fought until the first public black high school was opened in Atlanta. So this is what Alberta grew up doing, attending marches, thinking about boycotts, thinking about organizing. She had the privilege of education. Her parents really put their energy towards the church and her as their only surviving child. And she was able to use that education to one, become an incredible instrumentalist and a singer, and also to educate her partner. So when she meets her later to become a husband, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., he is not given the same privileges and opportunities that she is. Um, And so he's considered illiterate. And she already has a college degree. She uses her education to help him get into Morehouse and tutors him through his education. So even in his autobiography, he talks about how he couldn't have been who he was without her. So, so much credit that he gives her and even Martin Luther King Jr. gave his mother We just sort of left it behind. Historians, scholars did. So really amazing, incredible woman. There's a lot more I could say about her. But overall, faith is not faith about social justice in Alberta's eyes. You use your privileges to advance causes forwards. 
Um, you never see yourself as being better than anyone else simply because you've had maybe more formal training, but instead we all bring in our unique talents. Um, and then she also uses her gift of music to inspire others. I'll move to Burtis Baldwin. She was born in uh, Maryland in a tiny place called Deal Island, Maryland. And unfortunately, her life starts quite tragically. She, when she was born, loses her mother. Um, I can't say it was in childbirth um, because I, I can't say for sure, but I know that her death certificate has the same month in the same year that Burtis is born. And it says that she passed away from hemorrhaging. As we know to this day, it would not have been an uncommon experience then, nor is it now for a Black woman to lose her life in childbirth. And so Burtis, in this very tragic experience, becomes somebody who, instead of focusing on the darkness, thinks about how you move through the hardest moments in life. How do you find light? How do you find love? How do you focus on forward healing, even when the hardest things might happen to you? She also grows up hearing stories of the other freedom fighters who are born in Maryland and who come out of the state of Maryland, who are Harriet Tubman, you know, Frederick Douglass. Maryland is well known later on Thurgood Marshall. So many who are born in the state of Maryland and inspire the rest of the world. So she has this kind of thinking around freedom movements. Um, and she becomes a writer herself. So she was very well educated. Everyone who knew her said she had this brilliant mind where she could transform your thinking through her writing and pass this message on of how you look at the hard times and how you find love and how you find light. So I find it really inspiring to think about how she later has a son who will call himself a witness to the power of light and does so through his writing. And this again, years before he's even thought of, Burtis is a writer who is helping her loved ones think about the world in a much more positive kind of forward thinking way. Moving to Louise Little, she was born in Grenada and she was very influenced by her grandparents. So they were liberated Africans is the term, which means that at some point they were enslaved and taken out of Nigeria. And then because of laws changing, they were able to gain their freedom. So they know what it's like to be enslaved and they carry it deeply in their heart, the need for themselves and their descendants to maintain their independence, maintain their freedom. They're very anti-assimilation to white culture. Um, and so this is how Louise is raised. <laughs> it's like, we're not assimilating. We're proud of who we are, Black pride, Black love. And so she believes this to be very important. Um, she also has the privilege of education and loves words. So she tries to commit as many words to memory. She speaks multiple languages. Some people even say she spoke up to five different languages. And she leaves Grenada when she's only 17 years old to go and join an international movement for Black lives, which is the Marcus Garvey movement, um, the Pan-Africanist movement. She leaves and goes to Montreal, Canada. And this is where she meets her partner, who is also an activist. So again, in history, many people who are fans of Malcolm X have heard that his father was an activist. But the reality is his parents were both activists. That's how they met each other. That's how they fell in love. And because of how radical they were and brave they were about Black independence, Black pride, Marcus Garvey notices them. So he has, you know, countless amounts of followers, but they become two of the most important in the movement. And he sends them strategically to places around the U.S. 
who are fighting against white supremacy, and they're there to further incentivize this revolutionary spirit. Um, so they're threatened everywhere that they go. But this was part of the strategy. They were doing it on purpose to go and make sure that these Black communities around the U.S., specifically in the Midwest, felt that they had the backing that they needed to continue to stand up for themselves. So I'll leave it there. But those are those three women. And there's so much more to be said, but, <laughs> but we'll continue. And you say a lot about them in the book. So folks, get the book. If you were, if, if just hearing that snippet of these three incredible, powerful, bold, creative, badass women, right? Like pick up the book because you weave their stories together so beautifully. You honor each of their humanities. Um, you honor their like lived experience, right? Very different experiences, but you also find the ways that their um, that their lived experience like make them who they are. Um, yeah. And I didn't know a lot, I didn't know any of these things about these women until your book. So um, I'm really inspired um, by them and the way that they navigated their early childhood to their adult lives to their relationships. Right. And also as they became mothers. Mm -hmm. um, and so and so as they became mothers, you know, we've talked a little bit about like some of the research you did around mothering as resistance, mother work. Um, and we at Parents of Liberation, we really see black parenting as a site of resistance. Right. Like our very uh, nurturing and raising children who are not meant to survive and not meant to thrive in this country is an act of resistance. Like their yeah. pure existence is resistance. Right. Um, and as we are talking about the way that they raise their children, right? Because, you know, I'm sure people are like, well, how can I raise the next Martin Luther King, <laughs> James Baldwin, or Malcolm X, right? Like, how do I cultivate that, right? And, and, and in the book, you talk about their parenting. Um, and in our work and in my book, I talk about, like, what are some liberated parenting practices, right? Um, and they're not all universal and everything's not going to work for everyone and, you know, you take what, you know, it's interesting because this is what Louise says to Malcolm about religion. Like you take mm -hmm. what fits and then you leave the other stuff behind, right? You take yeah. what resonates. And so when I think about parenting, a lot of times there's so many different parenting books, but they're all very white centered. And it's like, well, how do we talk about what are the parenting practices to raise liberated free yeah. black children? Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, could you share a little bit about um, what are some of the lessons from these three mothers that will help support us today? in raising free, liberated Black children. Um, and all of their styles are different and unique. So maybe you can go through and say, like, what are the lessons from each mother? Um, yeah. What are the commonalities? And then, like, where are some of the distinctions? Yeah, definitely. And gosh, I love that question as well. Again, they are so different from each other. So it's great to have the opportunity to go one by one because it's so hard to say what they had in common. But I will say overarching their mentality around making sure all their children were aware of what was happening in the country and in the world in terms of white supremacist violence and what their kids were going to encounter beyond their homes. All of them had conversations with their children saying, you know, this is the, this is how our country operates, but they also took it a step further always and said, just because a law says this, or just because, you know, someone might treat you this way outside of this home, <clears throat> that is not the natural order of things. That is not how things are supposed to be. And therefore, what do you do to create change? You know, these are things I've done in my own life to create change. How can you join me in that change making, <clears throat> excuse me, transformative work? So that's something that I think really kind of was 
something that brought them all three together. Their differences were, I would say, so Alberta, of course, leans on her faith for everything. So she bases all of it in the fact that this is not what God intended for us, that he intended for us to be equal on earth in her faith and in her discipline and her how she approached the movement. It was very much we need to think about creating this vision here on earth where we all are able to enjoy equality. So that's how she bases those lessons. So when Martin Luther King Jr. is young, he comes to her with all of these concerns. She's very open to him asking as many questions as he needs to ask to understand his daily experiences. You know, why can't the kids who were my friends before be my friends anymore when their parents say, you know, you're black, you're no longer able to be friends once you reach a certain age. And he brings that concern to Alberta and he says, mom, what is this? And she reminds him, here's history. Here's what happened with slavery. Here's what happened with, you know, the civil war. Um, But remember, this is not the natural order. So you are as good as anybody else. And she always reminds him of that. So tangibly as a lesson for us as parents, allowing our children to be aware, we can't necessarily protect them and we can't veil them to the realities of what's happening, but we also can't allow that to limit them or allow that for them to see themselves in that same um, mentality, that white supremacist mentality. So it's to be aware of it, but as something that's wrong and that's something that we are fighting to fix. And hopefully they'll join us in that fight. When I think about Burtis, her mentality was that she only could control her relationship with her children. Beyond that, she had no other thing that she could really control was her opinion. And so she loves them so deeply and so wholeheartedly and accepts them for who they are and encourages them to do what they're passionate about and puts all these other worries aside to make sure that they know in her eyes, she sees them as the most beautiful, amazing beings. Um, So that no matter what happens beyond that motherly love, no matter what somebody else tries to make them feel like, they'll know their worth because of how she loved them. So that was really crucial to her. Um, Then we move to Louise, who I would say gives the most in terms of like tangible, like here's strategy. She was very clear um, when they came back from school, all of her children, she had eight children. They would sit down at the dining table in the kitchen and she, sorry, my son is like having a party and they would read um, newspaper articles from around the world. And she wanted them, one, to know, again, not only what was happening in the U.S., but what was happening internationally, so that they felt like they were part of something larger, that this movement for our lives was not only in their city, was not only in their country, but inspiring people worldwide were fighting on the same team against the same enemy. This was really important to her. And so they would sit and they would read these articles out loud to her. If they stumbled on a word that they didn't know, she had a dictionary waiting for them. She's the woman who loves words. (laughs) And they would go and read that word, learn it for themselves, and then go back to reading the articles out loud to each other and to her. Um, And she also made sure to ask them what they were being taught in school. She wanted them to kind of summarize to her what somebody had said to them about history, about the country, whatever. And she would reteach them based off of what she believed needed to be communicated. So 
Wilfred Little, who is the eldest, um, Malcolm X's eldest brother, spoke about how this was something that allowed him to never feel inferior because of his race, that they always felt they could do whatever they wanted. Um, And unfortunately, we find out later that Louise is put away against her will for 25 years of her life and her children are each taken away from her. And the further they are from her, the harder it is for them to remember their worth at times. Um, And really the main reason why Malcolm X turns to a very different life for a while as Detroit Red, um, the primary reason for that is that he's taken away from his mom and her teachings, um, but he later sees his return to a more disciplined way of living as a return to her, a return to her teachings. Mm, I love that. I love that. So what I noted was um, um, Bertus is love. Um, if I could pick one word based on what yes. you said, Alberta is faith. Um, and Luis is um, worthiness and education. Yeah, right? I love it. Um, I love, I love this. And I love, um, it really connects to this quote that, you know, you have as the intro to that chapter about, you know, raising children, um, which has been a quote that has grounded my work as well around raising black children. Um, this is by Audre Lorde. Mm-hmm. Um, raising black children, in the mouth of a racist, sexist, suicidal dragon is perilous and chancy. If they cannot love and resist, they probably will not survive. Um, And what I'm hearing you describe in each of these parenting styles from Alberta, Burtis and Louise is that they're they're integrating both love and resistance. Right. Mm -hmm. Resisting anything that gets in the way of your love of self, um, that anything that gets in the way of your self-love, of love of your people. Right. And so that knowing your worth and that we have so much to fight for. So I really love these lessons. And again, there's so many more lessons. Like I learned a lot from Louise about self-sufficiency. Like each of her kids knew how to like grow their own food. They learned how to hunt. They built their own homes. It's like, do not rely on the government or those people for anything. So I really also learned a lot. There's a lot more in the book. We're just giving, she's just giving you a little tea. You know, the, the, the thing that really hits home to me about all these mothers, you know, what they also have in common, in, including raising such powerful sons, is that they lost their sons, right? Mm-hmm. So when I think about, um, when I think about even to this day, this current climate, right, you, you name that the things, the lessons that they taught their children about how to thrive and survive are similar lessons that we still need to learn and teach our children today. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about even the topic, we're talking about mothers of the movement. Um, and when I think about that, I reflect on, you know, the mothers of the movement of modern day. When I think about the 2016 Democratic Convention and the mothers of the movement were brought out, it was um, it was mothers of children who had been slain, mm. um, who had been taken from them. Right. And mothers who were grieving the loss of their children. Um, And I thought when I saw that, I was like, I don't want to be a mother of the movement, if that's what that means. Right. 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 But in your book, you know, you give you do a beautiful job of weaving like the context and the storytelling and the history covering like 100 years of black history and motherhood all together. Um, And so I'm curious, like, why as a society do we only honor black motherhood? and grief and loss <laughs> and struggle. Like, why don't we honor the fullness of Black motherhood? Why don't yeah. we celebrate that they raise and cultivate and nurture these radical Black children? We don't yeah. acknowledge it until their children are gone. So um, I'm curious, why don't we do that as a society? 
I did something that for me in writing this book, it was really important to me to one, say yes, at the beginning, all three of these moms, their worst fears will become reality. They are going to outlive their sons. This is something we know in history, but also spend time understanding the joy of their lives, the joy in their parenting, the ways in which they were giving their children life and their children were creating life for billions of people to come for years and years and years. And hopefully we never forget their names. And now we also understand the women who birthed them and we speak their names as well, Um, because it isn't just about pain. Of course, we have to acknowledge that. Um, But it's something that Melissa Harris Perry says, actually, Black women are not only this conquered victim. There's something really weird with an obsession with Black women's grief, where the most that we see them on the news is when they've lost a child or, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, this is one of the times where the most images of Black women were shown. And it was entirely in these really, obviously, tragic situations. And if that's not to say that we ignore those moments, but it's to say, why aren't we also speaking about the moments where we thrive? And it goes back to what we said at the very beginning. Why are those moments and those stories of success like in hidden figures kept from us very intentionally. There's something strategic about representing us constantly as a conquered victim um, and not as a whole complex human being who experiences both joy and pain, who navigates the world with very human feelings. And I think one of the problems with focusing solely on our pain and solely again on the mothers of children who have been lost and in these really tragic, awful ways is to present us also as kind of weird, like non-human creatures who don't experience the pain in the same way that others do. And we know as Black women, this is common across the board when we go to a hospital to deliver a child and we say, oh, something's going on with my body, you know, something's wrong, that because we're perceived as things that can take more pain than others, that pain isn't then taken seriously. So this obsession on a national level with our pain has actually turned into a numbness towards Black women and loss. Rather than saying we should all be disgusted, we should all be hurting, the more that we hear these stories. But unfortunately, in my opinion, it's had the opposite effect where People think it's almost an expected burden for Black women to carry or that, oh, yeah, I mean, of course, you must fear for your child's life because they're a Black child versus why aren't we changing systems around us? Why aren't people helping us change this country so that we Black women don't have to experience more worry than mothers already do? And I really try to end the book with what I call my Black Feminist Manifesto for where we are as a nation right now. Stop admiring us for our strength and our pain. Turn that admiration into action. Here are things that need to change so that we don't have to fear the loss, not only of our lives, but of our children's lives. That's not okay. Stop putting the headline as if we should only be inspired when a mother makes it through the grief of losing her child. She has no other choice. She's doing what she sees is the only thing for her to do. So let's also think about what supports and protections should be in place for us. There's just a lot of work to be done. And I think in centering hopefully these three lives where we get to know these women and we fall in love with them in a lot of ways, 
we not only say, wow, look what they made it through. We also say, look at the contemporaries that they had who didn't quote unquote, make it, who were killed, who didn't survive the attacks. That's also important for us to pay attention to. We don't always survive as Black women. These attacks are waged against us. And we shouldn't only congratulate those who, quote unquote, have the persistence and resilience to do it, but instead think about how do we save more of our lives? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. To all of that. We cannot only just focus on our grief because it it dehumanizes us. Right. Um, A colleague of mine, a sister of mine, um, Monica Dennis has often said like, we are hyper visible, right? Like our pain and all of that, our grief, our trauma is hyper visible. It's like over, you know, that's the headline, but our, our, our lived experiences of joy and happiness and love like that is invisibilized. All they, all we can see, in the world in the mainstream are our struggles right um and so someone in the chat is like yes celebrate our joy and and you know and at parenting for liberation we try to create space for for the both right i think you say that in the book that they lived a life of pain and joy and we have to have capacity for we have the capacity for both you know our ancestors have the capacity for both and at times it's diminished so that it can only look like we're subhuman, like we're not human because we don't have the full range of our existence. Right. Mm-hmm. And so at Parents for Liberation, we really try to do both. Um, you know, we do a Black Mama Magic event in person. And this year we're going to do like a drive through like pop up event where you can come mm-hmm. grab your Mother's Day gift and we celebrate and love on you. Oh, I love uh, but it. in the past, we use those days as like a day for black mamas to come and love on each other. Right. Um, we had this one activity where folks made um, hand scrubs and then like we each made our own hand scrub and then we partnered mothers with each other. And then as you you scrubbed their hands oh. and you spoke life into them. Right. You honored them. You, you blessed their hands. You blessed their family, you blessed their life. Um, and then they got to take the, you know, the remaining of their scrub home. And I think that's also what we don't see. We don't see it's not public enough of like the impact of and the support of black community for each other. Like we got each other. Right. Um, and so it's really important, even right now during this pandemic, like really coming together and uplifting each other, even if we're there, we're physically isolated. How do we create pathways for us to support each other, to love each other? Right. I think about the Asada Shakur quote that we that the movement utilizes is that we must love and support each other. Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about um the community of support, you know, like these mothers didn't do it alone, uh-huh. right? They had communities, they had supports. And I think that's really important for us. So what was the role of community um, and how did community show up for these three mothers? And it's crucial because, you know, throughout the book, I talk about a lot of different tropes used to limit Black women, you know, whether that's the Jezebel or the Mammy or the Matriarch or the Welfare Queen or the list goes on and on of these, like, let's reduce this woman and this this entire community um, in this really derogatory way. Um, but one that I end with in the final chapter is the strong Black women trope, because many have taken that sort of as a badge of honor. You know, I'm a strong Black woman. I can take care of this on my own. I can do this on my own. But unfortunately, I believe this is another trope that reduces us and treats us as if we are less than human. It shouldn't all fall on one person. It never should. Um, And unfortunately, many of us have felt that we have to carry everything on our own. um, And there's plenty of sources that will tell us that. But 
in community with especially other Black women, hopefully we're able to see the opposite of that, that we are a part of something larger. We are part of a whole. And if no one else will support us, we will support each other. We've done that through history. We're continuing to do that. We need to find each other and hold each other up as much as physically possible and mentally and emotionally possible. It's huge for our survival. And any indication that we're supposed to be separate of that community is again, strategic to keep us from one of our lifelines. If anybody is saying to you, you're supposed to do this on your own, you don't have someone to call, you don't have somewhere to turn, that is a part of allowing you to slowly but surely be unable to sustain yourself um, and your children beyond that. So definitely for all three of these women, I wanted to point to those moments where, because it can be really tempting to say, look at these three strong Black women. And of course, if we're just saying it, you know, the lower S, strong Black women, yes, they were strong Black women. But if we're making them, you know, the, the strong Black woman who did it all on her own, that is missing the point. And they definitely had moments where they asked for help, where they were willing to show their vulnerability. I think that's really crucial. And for our children to see that as hard as that is sometimes, and we definitely don't want to put the weight of the world on our kids. I'm not saying that, but it is important for them to see us as human beings as well. It's important for them to see the work that we do day in and day out to sustain them and help them achieve their goals and their dreams. So Alberta, of course, through her church, she finds community. Not only is she a participant in supporting other people, she's very willing to say, I'm a part of this larger community. I want to educate you know, as many people as I can with my privileges, et cetera. But she also often makes it known that she's very worried about her loved ones. She's very worried about MLK Jr. Um, she was fearful for his life. And that she needed people around her. She needed support. She needed prayers. She needed to be connected. Um, she wanted to be connected to her grandchildren. So she in no way isolates herself um, from being in community. When we think about Burtis, she does this through her church community as well. But also later on in her life, she goes back to Maryland where she you know, left during the Great Migration to go to New York. Um, but she tries to reconnect with her roots because she wants to have that community around her in her old age. She builds community not only through her children, but through her children's friends as well. So, you know, Maya Angelou and Marlon Brando, all these famous people knew Burtis very well because she welcomed James Baldwin's friends into her life. And everybody who knew her kids also knew her. So she would cook for them and this community of artists would come to her house all the time. So that was big for her, not only for her to have community around her, but for people to have a place where they could be in community. That was her home that mattered to her. And then when I think about Louise, in many ways, because she had moved so much throughout her life and as this activist who was strategically, you know, being told, to her and her family needed to move to get to the next place and, you know, do their work there. She becomes, I would say, the most isolated of the three, but she still finds community in her community of activists. So when she leaves Grenada and goes to Montreal, she meets fellow activists. She kind of latches on to this community of those who are also working to transform the world. When her husband dies, she, or not dies, I'm sorry, when her husband is murdered, she latches on to friends who 
later do some of them help take in some of the kids when she's put away in an institution. Beyond that, though, she says to her children, I view this institutionalization as incarceration and you need to do whatever you need to do to get me out of here. So she doesn't put on this face of I'm fine. It's okay. You know, don't worry about me. She says, this is a form of incarceration. I do not want to be here and I need you to speak up for me. So even after 25 years of her life being taken away and her being put in this institution, she lives another 25 years after that. And she lives it in community with her kids who are now adults when she sees them again and her grandchildren. And she spends that time educating the next generation of her family. So all three of them, you know, and it's multi-generational community as well, find ways to make sure they're not alone and that people around them are aware that they don't have some kind of superhuman quality to do it all, but instead can say, I'm sad about this. I'm hurting about this. I'm worried about this while also saying, these are things I'm passionate about. And these are things I love. And these are things that bring me joy. So again, returning to that earlier question of the complexity of their identity, they all three showed that really beautifully. And it's something that I carry forward in my parenting as well. My son is really young, but it's something that I'm going to remember, you know, he should see me in my wholeness. Um, as much as that's that's possible and as and is healthy for him to do so. Yeah. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And we had a comment um from Erica who said, yes, we have to stop saying this. And I think she's referring to the like strong black woman trope, like we got it and we can do it all by ourselves. She says, because if we continue to say this, systems and community will has believed us and they will leave us like to ourselves, right? So we can't keep saying, I got it, I, I can do it all. Yeah. Um, we can't. And we have to show that vulnerability not only to ourselves, but to our people um, so that we can get the support, right? And and you're, you spoke really beautifully about community and how community is so important. And um, and as I think about community in our work at Parenting for Liberation, Community is important for us to like come together, celebrate, love on each other, to support and uplift each other. But also community is is also a way for us to build our collective power. Right. Yeah. And for us to push these systems that you were talking about. Um, and so at Parent Liberation, we're thinking about black futures and Afrofuturism um, and what we want to see and what we hope for for our children, for our descendants, like what's the world we want to create? Like what's, what, what are we building towards? Right. And so a part of that is around dismantling the current systems. Um, So I'm curious about like, what gives you hope as black, as a black mother, what gives you hope in, in this, in this generation, like from that past to this present, what is giving you hope? And I'll share a little bit because it's something that you brought up. Um, I'll share what I'm hopeful about in this current moment, because it's connected to Louise's story. Um, around her children being taken from her and her being institutionalized. Um, so here locally, I'm a part of Women's Policy Institute. That's actually how I got connected. To yes. Um, and I'm working on, you know, I'm learning about policy and how as Black folks and as, you know, as, as community, like we actually have a lot of power to shift the political landscape. And I know, you know, you're connected to policy in other ways as well. Um, but I'm new. I'm just like starting my way in this fellowship program. Um, and one of the areas that my team is working on, we actually are working on a legislative piece, um, AB 656 for the Californian folks who are interested in looking it up. 
but it's really at trying to get at um, implicit bias in the child welfare system. So when I think about Burgess's experience, I mean, not Burgess, I'm sorry. When I think about Louise Little experience of how her children were taken from her um, because of implicit bias and racism in the decision-making process about is she fit to raise her own children, um, the work that we're doing is really a, how do we get at implicit bias? Because in the state of California, Black children only only make up 5% of the population, but make up 20% of foster care, right? And so when I think about what's possible, if we can get those numbers down and we can keep more Black parents with their children and get them the actual supports that they need rather than taking their children from them, right? Because yeah. of racial bias. And so that's some of, that's one thing that's giving me hope is that actually Black parents, like I'm, I'm, I'm a regular, regular Black parent, I'm in this policy conversation and talking to assembly members and, you know, advocating for policy change that can really impact the whole state, right? That we yeah. have access to make those changes to systems. Like we have that power. Um, and so knowing that I'm connected and I can bring in other black parents to tell their story and testify um, to help make some of these systems changes um, to really have an impact on our future, right? So that's what's bringing me hope. I want to turn to you. What's bringing you hope? Um, in Black futures, in Black motherhood. And I want to invite folks who are on the chat and on Facebook, also drop in what's giving y'all hope around Black motherhood, because, you know, we're going to close this out with some hope. I love that. I love it so much. And I love the work that you're doing. And it's crucial. And for me, it's kind of maybe a less specific answer, but definitely related in the sense of the work that we are doing, there's so much happening, you know, whether it's advocating for this or thinking about a universal basic income or people speaking about the possibility of universal childcare, quality childcare, universal preschool, um, these visions for the future. You know, I think Alberta, Burtis and Louise, I talk about them as this standing in for what Black mothers all do, which is we focus on the possibility of the future because we can't accept the circumstance as it is right now. So we are not only visionaries for what's possible in terms of what we can achieve, not only for ourselves and for our children, but we make that change happen. It's been a motivating factor in so much of this progressive, you know, thought, even thinking about um, Stacey Abrams and the other black women by her side who transformed a state and therefore a nation by addressing voter suppression and that we're focusing on voter suppression and what can happen when everyone truly gets to be heard is inspiring. So I'm an optimist. I am definitely somebody who is very critical of how systems still work in the United States and how much work we have left to do. But I'm also inspired by the work that has happened so much because of Black women. And that's why I'm so hopeful. I can't say that we're just as bad as we were before, because that's not honoring the work that Black women did before us. Um, and instead, when we see ourselves as, again, part of this, like, legacy that, you know, when I'm talking about these three men and say, that's not where it started, and we talk about their mothers, and we talk about their mother's mothers, then we also see how we're connected to that work, that we're continuing something so huge, and it's really an incredibly beautiful adventure to be a part of. Um, but we can just never, we never can become complacent. So there are so many different things that are happening that I find to be amazing. 
And I think as black women always have for others, it may be something that they're like, it's not time. There's no way that's ever going to happen. We've been told that from the beginning. It's the thing when Kamala Harris was running for president and everyone was like, the country is not ready. Okay, you you all have never been ready for us, okay? That's not gonna stop us from doing what we're here to do. And that day in and day out, that general feeling, um, while also having a growth in this notion of let's not kill ourselves for the country either, let's like also take care of ourselves and do so in a way that's sustainable. Like I think we're also starting to find a balance between being active agents in change, but also having a moment where we say, I'm going to take a break. I'm just going to spend time with my kid and I'm going to relax. I love that balance. And I think it's something that makes it so that we can do even more. So I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic. There's so much good work happening and I hope that even through my writing, I can just create a platform to get the word out more about what Black women are doing (laughs) day in and day out. Yes, you are. Black women, Black mothers. Um, This has been an incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed. um, I've just really enjoyed this. Um, I wanted to see if there's any questions. Um, Folks have been in the chat. Folks are naming what they're um, hopeful for. Um, as well for Black motherhood. Um, I saw somebody ask how they can buy the book. I saw that a little earlier. Yes. Do you want to tell them how they can buy the book? We put it in the chat, but say it for the folks on Facebook who can't see. Definitely. I mean, it's sold wherever books are sold. So support your Black-owned local bookstores as much as possible. I will say it's kind of a good problem to have. The book is backordered almost everywhere right now. (laughs) I guess my publishers were not expecting that this many people were going to want to read about Black mothers. So we showed them didn't we? Yes, we did. So keep on ordering it. The the orders are still going through. It just may take a little bit longer to get the book. Um, But definitely as much as possible, support your locally black owned bookstores because they, they have them and you can get them online or some that are still um, open in person. You can go and support them as well. Yes. And when I have my book um, launch, the person who was interviewing me encouraged everyone to buy three copies of the book, one for yourself, one for a friend and one for a stranger, just somewhere, just leave it somewhere, leave it or donate it to a, to a school or donate it to a childcare center. So they definitely encouraged everyone to buy three books, three copies, because we really have to make sure that people are knowing about um, this work, this incredible work of black mother and black mothers. Um, Someone's putting in the chat, some local, uh, local California, SoCal, uh, black owned book stores. SO1, I'm sure, probably has your book. Yes, they were definitely back ordered, but I think they're going to get stocked soon. Marcus Books, also in Oakland. um, Underground Books in Sacramento. We have one question in the chat. What was your writing process? Because I read in the beginning of the book is that you found out you were pregnant when you're writing this book. So So tell a little bit about that. Um, oh, someone's asking for one in Maryland. There's one called Mahogany Books in like DC area, Maryland. I think they might also have one there. Okay, <laughs> there's there's so many. All the, you know, all the bookstores. <laughs> I'm trying. I want to support them as much as possible. But yeah, in terms of my writing process, um, for this book, I so I should break it down for how it worked with my PhD. The first year was my like kind of proposal year when I came up with the idea. 
The second year was supposed to be a research year where you just find as much information as possible. And then the third year is when you write um, the book or you write the dissertation. I decided the second year because I was just like so inspired by everything I was finding um, that I would just sit and start writing that year. So all the information that I was getting, I just started to put the chapters together in my mind because there was so much and so many different, not so much, I should say there's not a lot of information out there, but because I was looking through so many haystacks for these few needles, when I found them, I needed to kind of just figure out where it was going to be placed in the overall um, dissertation and later the book. So it was a lot of doing a couple of days of research. And then the second half of the week, I would be writing. Um, a lot has changed, obviously, since my son was born. And I'm not upset about that. It's just different. <laughs> I don't have as much time to sit and write as I, I used to. And that's completely okay. Um, and I think also now about um, getting a lot more of my op-eds out there and making sure that the excitement around the book continues and there's so many themes in the book that I want to kind of delve into further that I think I can do in like these kind of one-off articles. I should say that finally that I also write fiction. So I've been working on a novel for about five years. And with that writing process, when I started it every day at the end of the day, I would come back and write as much as I could, maybe even just 30 minutes, 20 minutes. Um, but because I've always known I wanted to write books and it's been a dream of mine for a long time, I started to say, what's keeping me from doing that? <laughs> you know, you can't be so tired, you know, at some other job, if it's not your primary passion, that it keeps you from doing the thing you actually want to see yourself doing full time. And it's a dream come true for me to be able to make my living now off of my writing. And I just want to keep that up. So when I write, when I can write, I write. Um, and on days that I can't, that's also okay. And I spend the time just thinking about what I'm doing that day and how that's informing my writing later, because so much goes into writing. It's not just putting the pen on paper or, you know, typing the words. It's also just being really reflective of what's happening around you. And even if you can only take a little note in your phone for a thought that comes to you that you're going to come back to later, that's also fine. So I've adjusted <laughs> and I'm sure I will continue to do so and just kind of figure out what works best. Yes. Yes. I, um, when you said like, you always wanted to be a writer and then you didn't, and then you're like, well, what's getting in my way? It makes me think about that Toni Morrison quote. Like if there's a story you want to read that hasn't been written yet, write it. And so yeah. we did that and we really appreciate you. And then the last question I see in the chat is what are you reading lately? Ooh, or or listening to, because when you have babies, you don't actually time. <laughs> I definitely listened to your book and appreciated it. Oh, Y'all is also you. on Audible. I bought the book and I also listened. Yeah, <laughs> I love your that. voice. So I love it. I was like, Thank I got you. you. <laughs> I was so nervous about doing it because I had to audition to read my own book. I was Thank so, I was, I was like, my I book? <laughs> Like, when I wrote, you're going to tell me I got an audition for it, but okay. I can't say that. <laughs> I can't read my own thoughts. <laughs> but then you really feel like you earned it, right? You're like, okay, yeah, I was chosen and I'm going to be great. But <laughs> anyways, um, what am I reading right now? Uh, I just finished reading Purpose of Power um, by Alicia Garza, who I absolutely love. And um, I actually am hoping that my next one will be something that's fiction. I spent a lot of time this last year reading um, Children of Blood and Bone and Children of, what's, is it Virtue and Vengeance? What's the second B? I don't know. 
Vengeance. I think it's Vengeance and Virtue. Vengeance and Virtue. There we go. And I love those books. So I'm excited for the third to come out whenever it does. I'm incredibly talented. Of course, I read um, Vanishing Half by, uh, by, oh my gosh, Brit. I say Brit because I know her. <laughs> now I'm tired. <laughs> I know it. I, I just own it for a friend. I have it. It's blue. I just <laughs> It's such a beautiful book. Vanishing Half is so, so Bennett, Brit Bennett. There it is. Um, and so many others that I read this like last year, but yeah, most recently, um, those were the two, uh, purpose of power and then children of vengeance and virtue. One of those. Yes. I listen to them. So I, I'm not the best at like remembering the names cause I listen to them. Cause and you I, don't see the cover every time you open it. Yeah. You just get in the car. Boop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I want to honor your time and thank you so much. Um, I think we have a slide up. I want to close with the quote from your book. Um, you're more than welcome to read it uh, if you like. Oh my it. goodness. Uh, yes. This is such, it, so cool. Let's see this one, this one. I feel like that kind of sums up the book. It's on page 175 for those who have the book. Okay. These women are just three of countless examples of Black mothers who allowed their children to thrive even when all odds were stacked against them. Black mothers who created new visions for the world through the abundant love with which they raised their children. They had to believe in something their larger world said was impossible, that they and their children held the power to move mountains. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. I hope that something shared on this episode helps you on your journey to liberated parenting. To learn more about our other episodes, check out our website at www.parentingforliberation.org backslash podcast. Please like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you give us a good review. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed, no more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead.